hey, what if we don't just go rubbing bacteria and everything? <laughs> it makes me feel a lot of pain in parts I don't even have. Party at my place! I just hope nothing I do is ever appeal to the House of Lords. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's finally making good on its promises of Tom Repeats History and Fashion Backwards. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. That's right. Our marriage is both historic and fashionable. Well, only time will tell if it's historic, (laughs) unless you're a looper. Ooh. Right? That's an interesting thought. I know. Any loopers are listening to this podcast. Let how us do we know. get in? Yeah. yeah. And and how does our marriage look yeah. for posterity? Yeah. And and what's the deal with that movie? I haven't really... Right? There's just... Because it's like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and he kind of looks like Bruce Willis, except then you're like, like, why do you just look like Sin City? You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's a... Uh, it's it's very confusing, especially if you haven't and aren't going to watch the movie. Right, so, right. Yeah. Well, what a dumb conversation this has been. Thank you. You're welcome. I started it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, without uh, further ado, <laughs> do you have any new countries to report to us, Tom? I do have a new country to report. It is Malta. Hmm, I hear they have some interesting falconry down there. <laughs> we own the Mediterranean. Boom. Yeah. All right, Mediterranean, make with the olives. (laughs) Yeah, that's just for Kelly. Yeah, you can make with the the olive oil for Tom. Yeah, that's true. It's funny that you like olive oil and not olives. Yeah, yeah. Your loss. Uh, That's what people tell me. (laughs) Shall we dive right into telegrams from our cousins? Let's do it. Would you care to take the first one? All right, our first telegram comes from Cousin Leo. Dear Tom and Kelly, since Kelly doesn't believe in women first... Just finished listening to your podcast about Lord Fellows's Titanic. I agreed with everything you said about the abysmal show, but just listening to your hilarious podcast made it worth the time I wasted watching it last April. Anyway, I had been meaning to write you again for some time about our connections. I sent a much earlier telegram about The Hungry Hundred. I, too, am from Cincinnati, Mount Adams, and, like Tom, a Dayton Flyer, geology major, and also a fan of Jeopardy, a real triple threat. Anyway, listening to Tom's love of history, I had always thought in the back of my mind that he should try out for Jeopardy. He would be a natural. If he ever needs any hints, he can email me any time. I have the pleasure of being a two-time Jeopardy champ. In fact, I am ensconced in Jeopardy lore because I lost my third game due to a final Jeopardy misspelling of the capital of Lithuania. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's V-I-L-N-I-U-S, as I'm sure he knows now. Um... So if Tom ever does make it on Jeopardy and the contestant coordinator tells my story to illustrate that spelling does indeed count, you can realize it was one of your faithful Cincinnati-born UD graduate listeners. All the best and thanks for the podcast, Cousin Leo. P.S. Interesting fact, Botswana is home to the Kalahari Desert. Cool. Yeah. Um, and in fact, yes, I, I have auditioned for Jeopardy on several occasions. As have I. As has Kelly. Um, both of us have made it to the final auditioning round, but have not yet been put on. The we floor. were deemed wanting. Apparently so. Somehow. Somehow, in ways that we will never be told. Also, I think Cousin Leo is a lady, incidentally. Oh, uh, that's good to know. I'm pretty sure. Cousin well, Leo, if you're not a lady, <laughs> let us know, and I will retract that in an upcoming episode. Right. But I'm pretty sure Cousin Leo's a lady. In which case, I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, it's great, though. Uh, it's always exciting to hear from people who are from where we're from, Mount indeed. Adams. Great stuff down there. I feel like I used to know a restaurant that I really liked in Mount Adams. 
Mount Adams Grill, maybe? That's like obvious. Like, I could just be making that up, <laughs> yeah. you know? Because you're just assuming that there is one. But I'm, I, I, I am also assuming that Playhouse in the Park is still doing some really top-notch uh, regional theater. They won the Tony one year. Oh, wow. For regional theater. Yeah. Well done. Very, very well done, Ed Stern and co. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, on, another interesting fact, uh, my brother was a geology major at the University of Dayton. He was. So, so. hey, John, if you're listening... Get a job! <laughs> I'm kidding. You're fine just the way you are. Yes. So that's cool. I uh, I hope we do get on Jeopardy. I'm mostly I hope that you get on Jeopardy, <laughs> well, honestly. You. it's Your knowledge of trivia is much vaster than mine. It's true. And I was voted in eighth grade most likely to appear on Jeopardy. I wonder if we had an up yours downstairs, uh, you know, like like petition, if that would make any difference. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like they've got... It, no. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine that. Don't that's how do that. that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stay away from change.org. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, except for other things. Oh, it's yeah. Pretty, just for yeah. this. Yeah. Don't create this on change.org. <laughs> right. So uh, don't worry, cousins. If either of us ever manages to get onto Jeopardy, oh, oh you will be like the fourth to know. <laughs> right. Our parents invested a lot in our education. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have a telegram. Actually, that we wrote. Yes. And the response. We had a tweet saying that Patrick could have had fake Patrick. Right. Uh, of second series of Downton Abbey Infamy. Of Princess Patricia's Light Infantry. Yes, yes. Yes. Which also, fun fact, we just reread uh, World War Z. Yeah. And that uh, battalion is, in fact, name checked yeah. in World War Z. So there and, you go, Canadians. And not mocked. So, and not mocked yeah, at all. Yeah. So it was much more respectful <laughs> right. than what has previously happened on this show. Yeah. So anyway, we got a tweet that suggested that Patrick could have had a fugue state, which if you're a fan of Breaking Bad, is the the fake thing. Well, anyway, listen, it's a thing that happened, right. sort of. Can't say anymore. <laughs> I am the one who spoils. <laughs> so uh, I, was, I was skeptical. Right. I... Shocker, everyone. I'm the one who handles the social media. So I, I orchestrated this whole shindig. But uh, I was skeptical because I didn't see how a fugue state could have completely obliterated Patrick's native British accent. Yes. So we uh, dipped into the well and wrote to our neurologist cousin, Holly. And we said, hi, cousin Holly. Hope you are doing very well. It was suggested to us that fake Patrick could have been real Patrick because he went into a fugue state after the Titanic. Does that hold up at all? Our thinking is that it would explain the amnesia, but not the forfeiture of the native accent. If you have a minute to address this, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Best, Kelly and Tom. Cousin Holly got back to us with record speed, (laughs) saying, Hi, cousins, Kelly and Tom. Wow, crazy timing. I just took my neurology boards yesterday, and there was a question about this very thing. Okay, to get all doctory, a fugue state, or dissociative fugue, is an interesting idea to explain how Patrick could have been the real deal. This is what happens when someone snaps and loses their personal identity altogether for a while. You see stories sometimes about a person suddenly disappearing and found living somewhere else under a different name and no memory of their previous life. Most famously, this happened to Agatha Christie when she once came into some random hotel with no memory for the last week. Usually people come out of it, but it can can last months or years. So I agree. It is an interesting and somewhat plausible idea if that dude really was Patrick. My only objection to that theory is that he still had a Canadian accent even after he regained his supposed personal identity. 
Usually people with this diagnosis have zero memory of the events during the fugue state, so I would expect him to go back to his posh British accent once he remembered who he was. However, dissociative fugue is really, really rare, so I guess anything is possible. More importantly, anything is possible when you're Baron Julian Fellows and you hold the fate of the show in the palm of your hand, right? Mm -hmm. I saw that during the press junket for Series 3, Julian Fellows refused to answer a question about whether fake Patrick would return. I really hope he doesn't, not only because I called bullshit on that storyline in my first telegram to you, but because it was ridiculous and that actor was crazy annoying. Plus, Edith's looking awfully pretty in the previews for Series 3, and she deserves way better than that con artist. She may deserve better than Sir Anthony, too, but that's a topic for another telegram. Thanks for thinking of me when this question came up. And while I'm at it, thank you for introducing me to Manor House. My goal in life is now for a guy to call me a real kraken bird. Holly. All right. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah, no, that's uh, some good info. Uh, you know, the one the one thing that I would point out is that, as we all know, Agatha Christie's fugue state was explained by her encounter with Doctor Who. It so, was indeed. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that mystery has been cleared up. Yeah. Sorry, Holly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry to, to burst the bubble. Although I suppose that could be the explanation for Patrick as well. Yeah. Doctor Who just pulled him from the gaping maw of the Titanic. Yeah. He was on the Titanic. It's true. Yeah. As we recall. Or it could be some sort of uh, shape-shifting alien, Patrick. Hmm. Now we're talking. That's really cool. <laughs> I hope he's part of the family of blood. <laughs> if only for the... Uh, guest spot for that girl on spaced jessica something listen let's not get into (laughs) specifics right now let's not uh next we have a telegram from cousin clinton who writes subject ray the women and children first poll i voted yes but i think it probably made more sense when women died in childbirth more often but i'm a southerner where chivalry still lives sort of and women don't mind having doors open for them cousin clinton yeah well, and we talked about it a little bit on the last podcast about how, you know, that was kind of something that was really only popularized by the Titanic. Right, right. Um, and I guess it makes a certain amount of sense, you know, women dying in childbirth, like, here's your, you know, here's your consolation prize. <laughs> You're less likely to drown. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I don't know. Incidentally, on the subject of uh, women having doors open for them. I'm against it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it just gets really weird and awkward. Mm-hmm. Like in the office building that I work at, like anytime I'm on an elevator, I've noticed that if I'm in an elevator with a bunch of guys, they totally like defer to me to go first. Mm. And I just find that weird. And once I tried to hold a door open for this elderly guy and he was like, he was like, oh no, absolutely not. My mother would never forgive me. Wow. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I'm just trying to be nice. Yeah. You know, like. Not sure where that. Like I'm, I'm young and 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 fit you're as a fiddle. Sp- you're spry. I'm spry. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's nice to hold it. You know, basically, I'm an equal opportunity door holder opener. Yeah. Okay. If you go in the door first and somebody's coming behind you, absolutely hold the door for them. However, you shouldn't be like scurrying ahead of people <laughs> to open the door for them or right. not based on their gender. There's no reason going through doors needs to be overcomplicated. It's really not. That difficult. Uh, yeah. You they're know? Just, they're just doors. Granted, I've been known to push a pull door and vice versa. <laughs> yes. But come on. It's it's not that big of a deal. I don't so. know. Maybe, maybe doors used to be heavier. You know? They were all solid oak. and I like, guess so. I, I, Isn't that what servants were for, though? Uh, yeah, Chivalry doesn't even enter into it. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, I hope Cousin Dante enjoys that. Cousin Dante uh, was tweeting at us <laughs> wanting to know if I was a feminist. <laughs> I was like, at this late date, you haven't figured it out yet? Yeah. But I was like, yeah, totally. And he was like, oh, that explains a lot. 
<laughs> so, uh, but you know, uh, cousin Dante lives down south as well. So, right. I don't know how I don't know how y'all get on <laughs> down down there. What you are fixing to do? Yeah, <laughs> don't do that, Tom. <laughs> the South shall rise again to kick your ass for making fun of how they talk. Yeah, that that would happen. Mm-hmm. Would it? I don't know. I haven't been south of the Mason-Dixon line since I was like ten. Mm. So I don't know. Well. If you'd like to kick Tom's ass, please <laughs> send us an email at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. No, we reserve the right to reject any applicants. Yes. Uh, next up, we have a telegram from Cousin David uh, who writes, Ew, I am totally going to be that guy that I hate, but I'm going to do so tactfully because I've been dying with every mention of lady mortification. And then you said that they employed every actor in Great Britain aside from the ones tied up in Harry Potter. Here's the thing, dear cousins. Lady Mortification, a.k.a. Lady Manton, is actually played by Geraldine Somerville, who also happens to play Lily Potter in all of the Daniel Radcliffe films. So, yeah, there's that. I can go to my grave knowing I have done something good in the world today. Yours, Cousin David in Utah, who also wondered if Kelly was an ex-Mormon. Okay. Boy, I really got to start going on the uh, ex-Mormon comedy circuit. (laughs) Uh, that sounds like a great plan. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Utah's not that far from here. I imagine they all drink heavily. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. I actually, I did not pick up on uh, Geraldine Somerville having been Lily Potter. Yeah. Just because I tended not to pay too much attention to their, like, flashbacks and stuff. Right, right. Or I didn't pay that much attention to the movies as a whole, really. Yeah. I just kind of sat there so I could say I'd been. I'm yeah. not sure what my motivation was, really. I think you were trying to date me. Mostly. <laughs> well, originally, yeah. Yeah. But I kept seeing them. Yeah, I know. It's... And I had I'd fallen out of love with it. And yet... I don't know. You know, you start a thing, you want to see it through to the very end. Yeah, that's true. Our next telegram comes from Cousin Chris, who writes, Dearest Cousins, in regards to the Titanic podcast, I thought I would provide some specifications on Titanic things that you all either had questions on or might not have known. One. Titanic and its nearly identical sister ship, Olympic, which was launched the year earlier, would have dwarfed other ocean liners of 1912. The next closest ships were the Mauritania and Lusitania, which were 100 feet shorter than these two and also about 15,000 tons lighter. The Olympic and Titanic were also much more sleek in appearance than most other ocean liners with their cluttered decks. 2. Titanic lifeboat specifications. Lifeboats 1 and 2, emergency wooden cutters, capacity 40 persons. Lifeboats 3 to 16, wooden lifeboats, capacity 65 persons. Lifeboats A, B, C, and D, Engelhardt collapsible lifeboats, capacity 47 persons. 3. Titanic left from Southampton, England, with stops in Cherbourg, France, and Queenstown, Ireland, before heading for New York. 4. Julian Fellows' Titanic is the first movie on the subject to show the maids and valets dining room, which is where the stupid Aesop's Fables debacle of 1912 occurred. If you want any additional factoids, please contact me or visit your local library. And, uh, Cousin Chris, I know I've been saying this for a while, but we will be contacting you as we get into the James Cameron Titanic. Uh, for these are really fascinating factoids. Yes. And I really like that detail in the last one that, uh, this was the first Titanic movie to show the maids in Valet's dining room. Right, right. Which I never would have known there or, was a different one. Yeah, or thought about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So well done, Baron Fellows. You've, contributed one thing of worth to the titanic irv 
And Cousin Chris also let us know on Facebook that he just added up yours downstairs to the search results on stumbleupon.com, bringing Downton and Maggie Smith fandom to the masses. If this doesn't make me cousin of the week, I swear to God, I will give myself the Spanish flu. Oh, my. Well, this has been the most extreme example of uh, being held up for cousin of the week. <laughs> right. However, combined with uh, this and the Titanic factoids i think we got to give it to you cousin chris yeah congratulations your cousin of the week well done absolutely yeah no and actually uh right after he put us on stumble upon we did notice actually a pretty good spike yeah in downloads so So, we think it worked yeah which is pretty exciting it's really exciting yeah and cousins you can all feel free to list this podcast or tell people about it whatever you want to do we try to do as much as we can uh, to make sure that people know about it. But right. it does get a little time-consuming just making the thing. Yeah. And, you know, as we have kept uh, begging off on this particular episode <laughs> right. for weeks and weeks, yeah. uh, we've, we've got a lot going on ourselves. So mm-hmm. feel free, please, spread the Up Yours Downstairs gospel far and wide. All right. So here we are. Uh, yes. At long last. That's right. This is the Tom Repeats History Fashion Backwards standalone episode. Yeah. And it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to lean a little bit more heavily on history. Right. Uh, right. since we're not relegating some of the more womanly oriented historical things that I'm bringing to the table to the fashion pages, uh, yes. unlike the New York Times. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, do you want to start, Tom? Sure, I, I can give it a start. Okay, give it a start. So I'm, I'm kind of went with a theme of, uh, what, what I like to call Edward the Who? <laughs> <laughs> Which is basically, um, this, you know, we call this the Edwardian era because we're in this, you know, sort of Anglo-American paradigm. But, of course, it was really only the Edwardian era in Britain. Everyone else, they had their own eras going on at the time. And so I sort of picked out a few countries that seemed kind of interesting to me and just to check out what was going on there at this time in mm-hmm. history. So I'll go ahead and start off with one that I picked out, which was Brazil. Brazil! Yes. Was Robert De Niro there? Uh, no, hmm. he was not yet alive, Kelly. Aww. I don't think he is pretty old. Yeah, not that old. Not that old. No. So, uh, if you were Brazilian, this era of history would be to you a part of the Old Republic or the First Republic, which lasted from 1889 to 1930. And that was Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> no. no, no, that's the Empire. My right. bad. My right. bad. It was Emperor Don Pedro prior. <laughs> to the old republic but uh that that was what was going on during this time which was it was nominally a democracy but it was a very heavily rigged democracy Mm -hmm. Uh, it was also called the coffee with milk era because control was pretty much divided between the big coffee plantation owners and the big dairy like farmers as it should be right they make the cheese (laughs) they do so those those were the two major like controlling interests in the country fascinating yeah what is it now now it's it's just cocaine (laughs) or (laughs) i mean i you know i think that's a factor okay Um, but but they're 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 not as heavily monopolized by they're not as heavily monopolized they have a working democracy now um and they've really been on the rise particularly in the last i don't know 10 to 20 years a lot of times people will talk about the brick nations which are brazil russia india china ah yeah yeah and they're sort of seen as you know the the Mm -hmm. up-and-comers in terms of global economic powers but yeah in in this time period like i say nominally a democracy but it wasn't really uh for example in 1910 out of 22 million 
British citizens, only 627,000 had the right to vote. Wow. Yeah. And it was it was similar to a lot of, of Latin America uh, through this time period. And, and I mean, the, the remnants of this are still true today, particularly in some places like Honduras, which is basically vast estates ruled in, in really almost a feudal manner, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a remnant from the days of slavery, um, mm-hmm. which slavery wasn't abolished in, term, in Brazil until, I think, 1888. It was one of the last, wow. last countries in the world to abolish slavery. I did not know that. Yeah. Way yeah. to go, Brazil. <laughs> yes. Being in America, we don't have much room to talk there. But we can look down on Brazil. <laughs> and- sorry, Brazilian cousins. <laughs> Listen, I'm sorry. I'm trying to think of funny things to say. No, it is hard. Well, without Because we have no source material now. It's right. just us, and it's like... We we want to be witty, but we're talking about like reality. Yeah, we are. It's a lot easier to make fun of fictional characters. It's true, or people that pre- pretend are fictional on Manor House. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of you know they weren't being themselves. So right, right, that's true. People we pretend are fictional on Titanic. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, four hundred and sixty four landowners controlled two hundred and seventy thousand square kilometers of land as opposed to uh, 464,000 smaller farmers, which controlled a little over half that amount. Interesting. Yeah, so it was just vast, vast, you know, coffee estates and other other types of things. Mm, coffee. <laughs> yes. Coffee is delicious, but it led to great inequalities. <laughs> um it was a very decentralized nation, uh, partly just because it was so huge and there wasn't much kind of internal communication. Britain generally referred to it sort of internally as the Brazils rather than as a single nation. Ah, okay. So each uh, state was kind of run its own way. And, you know, it was very similar to like the, the sort of party boss system in American cities around that time mm-hmm. where there was, you know, sort of a boss and he would patronize various things mm-hmm. and they all kind of ran things to suit themselves. Yeah. Uh, the name for him was the coronels, which I believe is the equivalent to the word colonel. Okay. Um, uh, but they, they were sort of the, the powers that be in, in the States the only institution that was really national was the army, the military. They were the only people that really exerted any power on a national scale. The Roman Catholic Church to an extent, but they were basically an international organization and didn't, you know, the Brazilian church didn't think of itself as the Brazilian church. It was part of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Basically, the politics of the time period was all a battle between the military and the local coronels as to who was going to be in charge. And there was also a lot of internal unrest because it was such an unfair system. Uh, and the one example I picked out was the vaccine revolt. Uh, this, is that when people think that vaccines give their children autism? It's There's some similarities, actually. Okay. Um, Jenny McCarthy, I hope you're paying attention. <laughs> I hope so, too. Tell your friends. Um, <laughs> but uh, Bust out your sketchers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this took place in Rio de Janeiro, which was the capital at the time. Brasilia wasn't even built until sometime in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had major problems with disease. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of slums and a lot of they had yellow fever, the bubonic plague, smallpox, just a lot of problems. So in 1902, the mayor and uh, also Dr. Oswaldo Cruz, who was like the sanitation guy, were given a free pass to clean up the town however they needed to. So they just started going through slums, tearing houses down, busting into any house they felt like to kill mosquitoes and rats, just sort of like 
driving through the place and demolishing the slums and replacing them with like upscale houses and gardens and avenues like that. So gentrification. Right. Gentrification, but like in a much more, uh, brutal, brutal, not uh, very re- short time. Yeah. Gentrification, yeah. As in like over a week. Oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Yeah. How do you even build a garden in a week? Well, I mean, you know, you, you get the slums out of the way and you, you start, you plant some seeds and <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> It's going to take longer than a week for the garden to grow, Tom. That, that it is true, but it doesn't. That's the key thing was that all the poor people were gone, okay. which was their main concern. Fair enough. You know, let them get sick in the outskirts, not in the center of the city. Then in 1904, they passed a mandatory vaccination law, which empowered public health officials to go into anybody's home and give them a smallpox vaccine by force. Oh, <gasps> yeah. Naturally, they had not exactly built up trust with their previous <laughs> campaigns. Um, and so inevitably rumors spread that there were side effects of the vaccine and moreover that women would be forced to undress and even that the vaccine had to be injected in, quote, the intimate parts. Um, so Y'all can't see my face right now, but I am horrified. Right. I mean... Those parts were untrue rumors, but right. But of, still, I mean, it's that idea yeah. that that's what it's for, right? And so, so there was a revolt, as you can imagine. Uh, the city was a battlefield for about a week. Thirty people died, one hundred and ten were wounded, and uh, hundreds wound up being arrested and deported to the state of Acre, which is the extreme western part of Brazil, um, like way off in the middle of you know the jungles and the okay. mountains, um, and uh, you know had to live there for the rest of their lives. However, everybody in Europe thought that everything had gone great. And in 1907, <laughs> the 14th International Congress on Hygiene and Demography in Berlin awarded Dr. Cruz a gold medal. What? Yes. So, well, we'll get into this a little bit with some of the stuff that I researched. But people had horrific, horrific ideas about public health in yeah. those days. Like just the most ass backwards detrimental awful awful thinking yeah just and and we're talking about the progressive people like Mm -hmm. we're talking about the people who (laughs) who wanted to make a better world (laughs) right like even healthcare was so brutal yeah so uh i guess we uh we're lucky to have dr clarkson and his sort of vaguely ineffectual (laughs) brand of british uh doctoring that's true well especially with you know harriet jones there to egg him on for his dropsy treatments yeah exactly <sighs> wow yeah it's a lot to handle yeah so that's uh that's the old republic wow what was the new republic better no uh, <laughs> <laughs> um in 1930 they the military finally just took over um and this, I didn't research this as thoroughly, so this is going from memory, but my understanding was, I mean, the military was taking over a lot of places in the 30s, and in most of those places, it was at least initially welcomed, because at least, you know... They Somebody were was doing something. Right. And I'm not sure, I feel like it was sort of in the, it was in the 80s that they began, and they, that they began to sort of ease the military out and, and transition to actual civilian government. Mm-hmm. And they, they do now at this point... Uh, you know, insofar as any democracy is, you know, really working. But uh, right. President Lula, Lula Silva, I think is his name, uh, it was like a socialist and was elected mm-hmm. and they let him be elected. So, they- well, good on you, Brazil. We take back everything you said before. Yeah, they're doing all right. Yeah. Cool. 
Uh, so next, I'll go with another entry in the uh, the brick block, I guess is the name for it. Okay. Uh, but uh, which is China, and China. I mean, you know, I could. I could have spent weeks researching this era in China, and I could have, you know, gone on for hours about it. I mean, I, you know, I'm giving this is in particular what what just were, a tip of the iceberg. Listen, but we're lazy. We, yes, yes, that is key. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, let me say throughout this, I tried to look up pronunciations, but uh, my pronunciations are probably all off. Uh, so I apologize for that in advance. I have brought this podcast to its knees. You really have. With my lack Ugh, I'm of so, accuracy. I am, I am so upset right now. Okay. I'm disgusted. <laughs> what would Ang Lee say? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but he would pronounce it correctly. <laughs> okay. So China in this age, if you're Chinese, you would think of this as one of two ways. Either this would be the, the, towards the end of the Qing dynasty, which was hundreds of years old at that point. It, it, was often also sometimes referred to as the Manchu dynasty uh, because it was founded by people from Manchuria, not mm-hmm. by sort of, uh, well, Han Chinese, not by, they were considered foreigners when they took over mm-hmm. in, I think, the 1600s um, and kind of always never quite fit in with uh, the, the populace as a whole. Uh, but the other way that Chinese people often think of this today is as part of the Hundred Years of Humiliation, okay, um, which started in about the mid-1800s. And now, at, at, as of the mid-1800s, China had been doing whatever the heck they wanted for a thousand years. They hadn't really ha- faced any serious local rivals. And in particular, they refused to import any manufactured goods from the West. They would only take silver in payment. And this had been... You know, going back hundreds of years, sil- you know, people had known that silver all ended up flowing back to China because that was all they would take. And you know, there was plenty of demand for what they offered. And if silver was the only thing they'd take, people just had to pay up for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but finally, in the mid 1800s, Britain was you know in the midst of becoming the dominant power and didn't feel like it had to put up with that crap anymore. In particular, they wanted to use opium as a source of. Woo! <laughs> Right. Party at my place! <laughs> yes. Um, Free base! Right. Uh, <laughs> while I'm sure many people had your point of view on that, the Chinese government did not feel that opium was what their country needed. Boy. Wow. <laughs> no, I just, you know, considering sort of the, you know, the very biased, like, American view of Chinese culture, particularly in those days, right? how different would our perception be if they had managed to sort of put a stop to that yeah yeah but uh you know opium finds a way particularly when backed up by the british navy yeah so it was basically the the first opium war was in 1842 and china just got crushed immediately i mean they were bringing you know their their navy was the same wooden ships that they'd been sailing for hundreds of years and the british had modern steamships Mm -hmm. uh and just destroyed them and they you know the Qing dynasty was already unpopular and always kind of had been and the fact that they had to sign this really like punitive treaty that was considered a huge embarrassment that just deepened the unpopularity of the of the Qing dynasty, mm-hmm. um, and it just you know it opened up all ports to Western trading. It you know forced them to accept various concessions, and of course opium. I'm and, very upset. Right. 
I'm just getting started. No, I know. I'm like, <laughs> China deserves better, but it sounds like they're going to take quite the beating here. They are. Um, so this led to a lot of unrest throughout the country against the dynasty for having, you know, humiliated the country. The most notable was uh, a rebellion that left, led to the, the Taiping Heavenly Republic being established uh, for a, a short period of time. It was eventually crushed. Uh, but the war that was fought between China and the Taiping Heavenly Republic was the second bloodiest war of all time behind mm. only World War II. What? Right. And nobody, uh, you know, nobody in America has ever heard of it, including me. I have now. Yeah. So that, that was an interesting thing to learn. Uh, but throughout this time, the British, having gotten what they wanted from the Qing Dynasty, did not want to take over China. They wanted to rule through the Qing Dynasty, mm-hmm. which was pretty much their standard way of doing things. I feel really bad for the Qings, incidentally. They, they had it rough. Um, the British then decided that they wanted to renegotiate the treaty that they had signed because it wasn't fair enough to them yet. They demanded an embassy in Beijing, and that was the you know, the last straw for the Chinese. And they said, no, we're not, we're not renegotiating this treaty, which led to the second opium war, which was again, an easy British victory mm-hmm. over China. The new treaty was even more insulting. It forced China to grant British warships free passage throughout all Chinese rivers. And, and this is the one that I can't even believe it was in there, but they required all Chinese official documents to be written in English. What? I know. That is awful i know like it's just what a dick move i know like they it was just pure like no what's so infuriating about that just on both sides of this like first of all britain hey quit being assholes Mm -hmm. like they aren't as technologically advanced as you they can't possibly mount a defense against what you're doing so then don't then humiliate them further right Oh, my God. Yeah. But it was just, you know, it was humiliating people was how you showed, you know, what a big I know. geopolitical but then, and stick then you carried. At the same time, then, you know, for, for the Chings, like, just what a raw deal yeah. to get. I mean, you yeah. know, because no other no other dynasty that could have been in place at that time would have been able to compete either. Right. It just, I'm, I'm very sad that they had to, like, get painted with this, you know, yeah. this horrible shame yeah when any other political power would have succumbed in exactly the same way right so then in uh 1895 uh the chinese lost yet another war this was a war with japan the the sino-japanese war of 1895 which actually a slight digression here one thing that you'll notice if you read if you're going through and looking at the history of different places throughout this time from like the 1880s up through world war one is just there's a million wars that all have just names just like the Sino-Japanese War, the Russian-Japanese War, the, I think there was a, uh, a Uruguay-Venezuela War, or Uruguay was mm-hmm. somebody war. Just all these wars that don't even have any other name, because it was literally just two countries just like getting into a fight for no real good reason. Mm-hmm. Just to sort of fight. You know, because it's not like, it's not like, you know, the, the American Civil War or the, the French Revolution or things like that, where there was some like point to it all. Yeah. Whether you agree with it or not, it was just just some territorial dispute. The Britain and the U.S. nearly got into a war around this time over the border between Venezuela and British Guiana. What? Right. Like, who in the hell cares about the border between Venezuela and British Guiana in the U.S. or Britain? 
If you live there, fine, but come on, people. So if you and I got into a fight over the last pizza roll, it would just be the Kelly-Tom war. <laughs> right. And it would be a huge diplomatic incident. There would be telegrams fired off at the highest mm-hmm. level. And uh, and I would get the pizza roll because <laughs> I always get the last pizza roll. Yeah, it's true. But to finish the analogy, uh, Britain would end up installing a governor general in our house. What? Like, that's how most of the wars ended. Does he have access to my bathroom? Probably. What a jerk. <laughs> It'll force you to spell color with a U. Mm, I'll have to say aluminium trashkin. <laughs> It's true. All right. Well, don't tread on me, Great Britain. <laughs> here, here. I've seen what you did to those chings. <laughs> Up yours downstairs strongly supports the independence of the United States. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yes, after the, the Chinese lost that war in 1895, the emperor, who was called the, the Guangxu Emperor, uh, decided it was finally time to initiate reforms, uh, similar to what Japan had undergone the the Meiji Restoration, where they became a much more constitutional government and uh, much more aligned with the West at this point in history. And uh, Guangxu decided it was time to open things up, introduce some liberal reforms. Uh, He started the Hundred Days Reforms. However, at this point, his aunt, the Dowager Empress Cixi, stepped in. Is that Chinese for Violet? (laughs) It's pretty similar. She... Uh, had previously orchestrated a coup against the regents who had been placed over her nephew uh, back in the 1860s or something like that, and always been kind of hanging out behind the scenes. But then when he started introducing reforms, she, who was very conservative, as you would expect a dowager empress to be, decided to step in, uh, kick Guangxu to the curb, and run through her nephew, who was titularly the emperor, uh, but she ran things from behind the curtain, mm-hmm. as they said, for the rest of her life and, until 1908. Good for her. Well, she... Uh, well, I mean, just in the sense of seizing power. Yeah. I don't know what she did with it. Good to seize power. Unfortunately, I mean, she was seizing it as a conservative reaction against these reforms, which ultimately, you know, they needed to reform. Mm-hmm. Their, their, so she just kept them mired in the past. She kept them mired in the past. Thus unable to adequately defend themselves against whatever the next horrific uh, invasion is, I'm sure. Which leads us to the Boxer Rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I may not know the facts, but at least right. I know the march of history. Yeah, the, the Boxer Rebellion was started by the Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists. Oh, Dizzle. Yeah, uh, generally known as the Boxers, but they were a secret society that was centered around martial arts uh, with a lot of Taoist and Buddhist influences and centered around opposition to the West uh, and, you know, sort of Chinese national restoration mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. And originally, they were also opposed to the Qing dynasty for all their you right. know, humiliating accommodations. But uh, Sushi decided to throw her weight behind the Boxer Rebellion uh, and support them, you know, semi-behind the scenes. And they, they changed their slogan at that point. They would say, support the Qing, destroy the foreigners. Mm-hmm. So so Sushi was identifying herself with them. Which, Interesting. Well, know, I mean, it's good PR for the Qings at that point, I would think. Right. I mean, the, they were had almost universal support in the countryside. The problem is that the power structure in China was very divided on this subject. Sushi was behind it, but uh, a lot of the governors of the states who had independent armies were pro-Western. I mean, you know, Britain had been making sure that everybody in charge was on their side for years and, you know, propping them up all this time. Mm -hmm. And so there was not a really united Chinese 
support or Chinese government support. It was very fragmented. And moreover, Sushi uh, had lost the support of a lot of people by the way she took power in the first place. Mm-hmm. So she was forced to sort of become populist against everybody that was actually in government with mm-hmm. her. And so there was a lot of disunity there. But after she announced her support, they spread rapidly uh, and began sort of making their presence felt in Beijing. And in June of 1900, German soldiers in the, the legation quarter, which was where all the foreign embassies were, uh, captured a boy who was one of the boxers and executed him, uh, which, you know, just because they were German and they felt like they could do that. Mm-hmm. So thousands of boxers stormed Beijing after that and uh, took basically took over the city. And Chinese, the regular Chinese soldiers moved in as well. It was sort of unclear for a while what they were going to do. But mm-hmm. finally, Sushi said, we're on the side of the boxers mm-hmm. and had the army joined in with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in response, the legation quarter was fortified. They brought in some reinforcements when, as it had become clear that something like this might happen. And they, they fortified the place and underwent a siege of about a month, but successfully uh, against you know thousands of mostly ill-armed you know, boxers and with some support from the army. And then finally, a band of 20,000 Western soldiers from various nations landed on the coast, marched their way to Beijing, and freed the legation quarter. At that point, that was pretty much it for the Boxer Rebellion. They stayed in Beijing for the uh, next... Yeah, they stayed in Beijing for the next year, uh, looting the city, going throughout the countryside with punitive expeditions. Wow. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was very excited about it. He said that, the you know, that like the Huns before them, they would show people that nobody could disrespect a German and get away with it and all this sort of thing. So definitely a lot of a lot of atrocities going on at that yeah. point. Um, I mean, the boxers had committed their fair share, too. They definitely massacred, you know, missionaries and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the Western occupiers responded in kind uh, and fined China $61 billion, roughly the equivalent of $61 billion, um, over the next 40 years. At this point, the Dowager Empress finally started to kind of allow some reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ended the the imperial examination system, which for the last hundreds of years, it was basically like high-stakes testing in the U.S. educational system, mm-hmm. except to get any job in the government. You took this very, like, ritualized mm-hmm. uh, exam process, and of course, if you were rich, you could study for it and make your way up through the ranks, right. all that sort of thing. So she finally ended that system and had more merit and a few other things, but it was basically too late. Uh, the dynasty collapsed in 1911, and uh, about 40 years after that, the communists took over, mm-hmm. and that brings us to the present day. All right. All right. Well, China. <laughs> yeah. And again, I mean, there was so much going no, on. No, I know. I'm, I'm like, that is such the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And we do plan on doing another one of these someday. You know, Lord knows when, but <laughs> <laughs> we could maybe get some more stuff about that. Yeah, and maybe. I could look up more of the fashions. Yeah. Because I'm like, well, what were they wearing, the boxers? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's... How did they look? Yeah. Well, let's take a short break from this history. Yeah. I have uh, drummed up a couple of factoids about fashion and such in... Uh, Edwardian England that we have not covered previously. This I got from the blog Jane Austen's World, which primarily deals with Regency era England, but she also covers some of the Downton Abbey stuff. But uh, in 1912, Highclere Castle, where Downton Abbey is filmed, uh, they would have used the services of 25 maids, 14 footmen, and three chefs. Wow. So just to give you a sense of the scope of what the staff 
would have really looked like. Yeah, yeah. And and it mentions, you know, you can see other servants, you know, in the background. But I mean, it's it's rare that you see all of them together. Like even when they're all in the servants hall together, there's just not room. Right. Right. So, but also all the below stairs stuff and the servants quarters are not actually part of Highclere castle. Right. They're all built on a soundstage and filmed elsewhere on location Mm. or the opposite of on location (laughs) on a soundstage. So it, it would kind of stand to reason a little bit that the servants hall wouldn't necessarily match whatever the floor plan would have been. Yeah. Then I found this really cool site uh, for historical romance novelists called Lust in Time. Uh, But they had some facts about the Edwardian period, most of which we'd covered before, but there were some things about cosmetics and and sort of uh, personal care that I found interesting. First of all, they say Edwardian ladies actually loved cosmetics, which is sort of in contradiction to what was said by Anne Nosh Oldham. Congratulations on your Emmy, by the way, Nosh. So I need to look into this a little bit more closely, but this does sound like uh, this is what the cosmetics would have been Uh if they were used. But So it says, Edwardian ladies love cosmetics. The fashion look was unnaturally pale. Uh, All of the cosmetics were chemical-based versus herbal cosmetics, which were pretty usual leading up to this period. Okay. They were very damaging to the skin. Ladies might apply a white face paint, then rice powder or pearl powder, which I'm sure was really expensive, right. followed by rouge and lip rouge. Back then, even some women would have their lips and cheeks tattooed, uh, as oh. they do now. Wow. Um, eye makeup wasn't too common. Uh, sometimes they would use an eyebrow pencil. But evidently, people would brighten their eyes with drops of belladonna, which is, for the uninitiated, <laughs> Deadly Nightshade oh, right. is in the name. <laughs> so that seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Um, but in 19, before 1909, women would shop for cosmetics. Like, they would go in the back doors of salons. It was a very hush-hush, you know, mm. sort of the equivalent of prostitution. Uh-huh. Uh, for, you know, in the sense of women as purchasers right. of something illicit. But then in 19... 19- We're kind of like... Uh- more so, like, uh, a few decades ago, plastic surgery. Yes, yes. So it was very hush-hush. Yeah. But in 1909, a man named Gordon Selfridge opened a new store in Oxford Street, and he had cosmetics on open display, and he encouraged women to come in and try it out. And so after that, buying cosmetics in public was much more socially mm-hmm. acceptable. In terms of fragrance, the most popular fragrance of the era was Violet, Okay. Which makes sense since we have Violet, the Dowager Countess. Yeah. Other popular scents included Jordan Water, Atkinson's Lavender, or Heliotrope, Orris Root, or Roses. And if you sweat, the faint smell of your sweat was referred to as bouquet de corsage. And uh, it was claimed to be attractive to gentlemen. Oh. Which actually, I think, stands yeah, to reason. There's, there's some truth to that. I yeah. don't want to get too deep into personal anecdotes, <laughs> but... <laughs> I've I've been told uh, that that is attractive to some people. Yeah. So, brown hair was considered to be the height of fashion. Hmm. Uh, blondes were actually considered unfortunate during yeah. the Edwardian era, which also kind of explains the coloring on uh, the sisters Crawley right, right. on Down Abbey. If if Edith was blonde, that would have been kind of a ding. Yeah, yeah, which is very different. Sort of. I mean, I don't think it's as prevalent as it was like when I was a kid in the eighties. There was this very, you know, right. it was the whole like blondes have more fun thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, there is still sort of this perception of blonde being sort of the the, the template. Ideal, yeah. yeah. 
This is my favorite thing that I found in all of the research that I've done. Uh, and there's some really cool stuff coming up about childbirth and contraception and fox hunting, your favorite. But there was a short-lived trend uh, at the very beginning of the Edwardian era of breast piercing. Whoa. Yeah, the nipples were pierced and fitted with tiny gold rings said to improve the bust line and make it curvier and to produce a pleasant sensation as the rings moved against the clothing. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. I cannot even believe that. That is stunning to me. Right? Because, I mean, it, it doesn't give me more information, unfortunately. But yeah, it's yeah. like, was this for married women? Was it for unmarried women? Yeah. You know, how did this figure into sort of like, you know, sexual expression? You know, it, you know, was right. this something that you would tell your friends about or was it kept super quiet? Right. Because, I mean, also, it doesn't seem like, you know, it seems like it's an aesthetic thing. But right. I don't know how I mean, it makes yeah. your breasts curvier. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I am very curious and like, I assure all of our listeners <laughs> I will be looking into this. That seems like it would need rings attached to some kind of system of pulleys or right. something. Right. <laughs> It's batty. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, you go, girls. Yeah. That's uh, that's quite the thing to have done. Right. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah. So uh, who knows? Maybe Sybil's gotten a little something, something going on underneath the old corset. Could be. Little shamrocks there. <laughs> yeah. So there's just some little, uh, some little tidbits that I've got. All right. And uh, let's dive back into the history. Let's do it. Let's go forwards with history. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, the uh, <laughs> the next country I picked out, just because of my personal obsession with it, is Finland, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't have a ton about. But the Edwardian era in Finland you would think of as part of the Grand Duchy of Finland, which was at the time part of the Russian Empire. They were the, joined the Russian Empire in 1809, uh, but their status wasn't really clarified as of 1899. And over the preceding 90 years, the Finns and the Russians had developed very different ideas about Finland's relationship (laughs) uh, with the empire. You know, the Finland thought of themselves as basically their own country, you know, with just sort of a titular recognition of of Russia, whereas Russia thought what Russia always thinks, which is that they're in charge and anybody that they're running is lucky to have them in charge Mm -hmm. and should be thanking them for it and so on. Um. So, in 1899, the Russians issued the February Manifesto, uh, which mandated a whole lot of things. This is the beginning of what's called the Russification of Finland, including things such as making the Russian Orthodox Church the official church of state, despite the fact that most Finns were Lutheran, and that Russian was the official language, despite the fact that there were about 8,000 Russian people living in Finland out of a population of 2.7 million. And Finland was naturally very upset about all this. Uh, you know, Russia really had to kind of ram this manifesto through, and there was just resistance to it throughout. Uh, the Russification period basically uh, went from 1899 to 1917 and was just a struggle the whole way. Finally, in 1917, sort of going along with the Russian Revolution, Finland m- managed to get its independence. They had a civil war between communist forces and, and non-communist forces, or the, the whites, which the whites eventually won, you know, leading to more or less the, the independent nation of Finland that we mm-hmm. have today. Uh, but one note from within this time, in, in 1905, uh, Russia lost, again, the Russian-Japanese War. And this led to unrest throughout their empire, uh, including in Finland, so that 
really was a big setback to the Russification campaign. And while Finland didn't get their independence yet, they did manage to reform their legislature, which had previously been the Diet of Finland, which was a very, like, uh, you know, mostly nobles. You know, there was like 70 seats reserved for representatives of peasants, but they didn't get to vote themselves, uh-huh. and all very indirect and all that sort of thing. Uh, and they established the Eduskunta, the Parliament of Finland, which was one of the very first legislatures anywhere in the world to have universal suffrage, including women, including men with who didn't own any land. In in 1905, everybody got the vote, and it was pretty much the first place anywhere in the world to did do that. Did that include people of other races, or was that not it, much it of a... It did. Okay. I mean, it, you know, nobody was excluded. Okay. Um, they, were, they were very... Uh, uh, well, the way we think of ethnicity, they were very homogenized. I uh-huh. mean, there's definitely... There's Swedish Finns and Finnish Finns, and mm-hmm. there's certainly... You know, they're all certainly aware of that, but they're all white, yeah. you know, almost entirely. But that said, the vote was not excluded by by race okay. or by gender or by property. So it was very impressive, Finland. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I've got for them. Okay. Really, you know, not as not as exciting as some other places. That's okay. But I wanted to, you know, get a get a Russian or Scandinavia a generally seems like they've just been pretty chilled out throughout most of history. Yeah. At least most of modern history. Most of modern history. Like they they had their run being like, you know, players in in European politics, mm-hmm. but they they've eased off. Yeah. And, you know, well done, yeah. Scandinavia. Seriously. Yeah. We yeah. want to live in you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So for my fourth country, I wanted to pick somewhere in Africa. And I considered uh, the Belgian Congo, but it's just way too depressing. Um, it's just awful. And we've already discussed the Boer War in South Africa. So I decided to take a look at Egypt. Um, Which is great, given all of the uh, Egyptian uh, sort of culture that was right. popular during Edwardian right. times in England. Right, exactly. Isis and Pharaoh and whatnot. <laughs> yes. Uh, so e- Egypt at this point uh, would have been, you would think of it as the as part of the Kedivate. And I'm not sure about the pronoun- pronunciation of that, but they were run by a Khedive, which basically, uh, they'd been part of the Ottoman Empire for, you know, forever. But in the 1900s, they basically declared themselves autonomous, which meant that they changed the title of the leader of Egypt from being the Wali of Egypt, which just sort of means administrator, to the Khedive of Egypt, which is more like viceroy Mm -hmm. um, and is a hereditary title. Okay. Um, So basically, they were still a part of the Ottoman Empire, but they basically ran their own show at that point. The Khedive was heavily supported by Britain, particularly after the Suez Canal was built, which was, of course, vital, vital to Britain. So they absolutely needed to be on good terms with the government of Egypt. Of course, this, as in most places, this wasn't actually popular with the people of, of Egypt. So there was you know, unrest there, as there was throughout all these places I'm talking about here. Um, the military actually revolted against the government over its ties to Britain. Um, this was... Shoot, I don't have exactly when this was. Sometime in the 1880s, I believe this was. Uh, so Britain took their army in to aid the government in putting down the revolt and decided not to leave until 1936. They they were comfortable. Wow. Yeah. So that, that was what was going on in Egypt at this point, is that it was technically part of the Ottoman Empire, technically autonomous, but the British army was in the country, wasn't going anywhere, and uh, the British consul general, Lord Cromer, pretty much ran the show. Mm-hmm. 
it was one of these things where the British Army was supposedly they thought they were just going in to put down this rebellion, but then once they were there, you know, you couldn't leave, and then they wanted to put in these financial reforms, mm-hmm. and they just found reason after reason to stay. So he was putting in. So Lord Cromer put in all these economic reforms, uh, particularly in the cotton industry and other things like that. Which, surprise, surprise, the reforms all benefited, you know, the upper classes and all his rich friends in Cairo, mm-hmm. and not the lower classes and the peasantry. They so there was a lot of unrest and hostility, leading most famously to the Denshawai incident. Now, the Denshawai incident, which I hadn't heard of before, I say most famously, I think most famously right. in Egypt. But what happened was some British officers, this is June 13th, 1906, some British officers uh, decided to go out for a stroll to shoot some pigeons. Uh, like they, you do. Like you do, yeah, especially if you're British. And the pigeons they shot happened to belong to local villagers. And more importantly, they accidentally shot uh, the wife of the local prayer leader. What? Yeah. Now, it was apparently an accident that, you know, they were shooting pigeons and there happened to be a woman there and they shot her. It's hard to tell the difference, huh? (laughs) Right. So, uh, you know, this led to a mob being formed against the British. The the local villagers mobbed the camp and the officers opened fire, uh, wounded five of the villagers. Two of the officers managed to escape, one of which died of heat stroke uh, out in the desert, but the other of which managed to get back to some other British Army outpost mm-hmm. and notify them. Uh, meanwhile, back at Denshawai, the village elders managed to calm the situation down. The, the British officers like l- relinquished their guns to the villagers, and the, the elders you know, got everybody calmed mm-hmm. down and, and resolved the situation. When the government heard about this, they did not interpret this as some idiot officers screwing things up. They interpreted this as a populist revolt that was, you know, they needed to crush it immediately. Mm-hmm. They sent uh, a bunch of mostly British judges to go look into the situation. Four villagers were convicted of murdering the officer that died of sunstroke. Um, well, that's convenient. Right. None of the villagers being the son. I'm not sure that that was... <laughs> the right verdict there yeah yeah uh two others were given life sentences in prison 26 more were flogged and given prison terms of various lengths uh one of the men was hanged outside his own home for his wife to see oh man yeah an egyptian police official was called to testify and he disputed the british soldiers accounts of events saying that um they had fired multiple times on the mob which the british claimed that they hadn't he was dismissed from his post, sentenced to two years imprisonment, and 50 lashes for disagreeing with the testimony. Okay. So that was the Denshawai incident. Uh, it was, you know, one of a variety of incidents, but one of the most famous. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, in one of his plays, or the introduction of one of his plays, said that, that if this is the empire, then every good citizen should rest at nothing to destroy the empire from within, if this mm-hmm. is who we are. Um, it was it was you know a big deal, and it was one of the key things that led to Egypt finally gaining its independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they didn't really gain it until after World War II, but it was you know definitely something that they all. It was a remember the Alamo type right, incident, right? Yeah. Wow, way to go, George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. Like, yeah. That guy, he was all right. <laughs> yeah. So those those are the four countries I picked out this time. Okay. Cool. Um, you know, I think. If, if we do have another one, I'm going to try to pick out, if possible, try to find someone that the British weren't all up in. But they were pretty much all in up yeah, on all of them at the time. Yeah, it was the empire. So, yeah, so. It's, it's hard to find. 
All right. Well, uh, changing tax just a little bit here. Mm-hmm. So we had a question from Cousin Kali a while back that I think we may have shared already, but she wanted to know a little bit more about um, childbirth and pregnancy in Edwardian times. Mm-hmm. And honestly, there's not a ton of information about what differentiates pregnancy and childbirth in the Edwardian era versus any other era. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, still a high rate of death in childbirth, both, you know, maternal and of the children. Mm-hmm. Medicine was sketchy at best. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the information I was finding was coming out of the Victorian era. Right, Because right. I don't think there was that much innovation they well, did I mean, start in in the early part of the Edwardian era. Actually, no, it was the tail end of the Victorian. That's when spinal anesthesia started coming in, epidurals mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, previous to that, women would just get knocked out by chloroform mm-hmm. and deliver their baby right. unconscious. Um, that was pretty popular amongst higher class women in the mm-hmm. uh, Victorian era. Right, right. Yeah, and so it's not totally clear during the Edwardian era if, you know, anesthesia was was popular. They were making some advances in terms of cesarean sections and mm. doing those more safely. Obviously, when, you know, antiseptic was invented, right. that was a huge, huge help for everybody. Right. Once doctors decided to start wearing gloves, like, yeah. all these very small hygienic things, honestly. I mean, that's really the history of medicine is, yeah. oh, hey, what if we don't just go rubbing bacteria in everything? Let's <laughs> right. consider not doing that. Yeah. Um, so what I did find a lot of information about is actually contraception, hmm. um, which kind of surprised me. But I want to actually start in America with something called the Comstock Laws. The Comstock Act was enacted in 1873, and it was a reactionary law because of the staggering amount of pornography that was circulated during the U.S. Civil War. Oh. Uh, there were a lot of legislators who thought that this obscene material had no place in America. Right. Uh, its chief proponent was Anthony Comstock. Shocker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, what's the name to act after him? He had to get yeah, behind it. absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, basically... I'm trying to figure out the best way to summarize this without reading the full text of the law. So the definition of obscenity, uh, originally they were using the British Hinklin test, which was you know used by people in Britain, but then the American test was finally set down uh, in 1957. So almost 100 years after oh, right. these obscenity laws went into practice, yeah. obscenity was defined as material whose dominant theme taken as a whole appeals to the purient interest to the average person applying contemporary community standards and was utterly without redeeming social importance, which still isn't much of a definition right. of, uh, of obscenity. Yeah. And uh, Comstock himself was responsible for determining what was or was not obscene when the law was enacted. And it basically, you know, anatomy books weren't permitted to be sent through the postal service. This uh-huh. was this act in particular was to prevent any sort of, you know, lewd material from being sent by mail. Right. So anyway, I found out about this because Margaret Sanger, who was one of the pioneers of birth control in right. the US, her first husband, William Sanger, was actually charged for disseminating contraceptive informa- information. Mm. And um, she was also charged later. But she was actually 
her conviction was reversed on the grounds that contraceptive devices could legally be promoted for the cure and prevention of disease. So by oh. 1918, uh, she was primarily involved with diaphragms. Um, mm-hmm. she, I, as far as I can tell, she's the reason that diaphragms did for such a long time. And I think still to this day are kind of the go-to method for a certain generation of women. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. her second husband actually, uh, helped her finance a factory to oh. manufacture diaphragms in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself there. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's hard to kind of tie right, it all right. together. But there was no such thing as the Comstock laws in Great Britain. Right. And I will tell you why. <laughs> uh, it's because our inimitable friend, Evangeline Holland of Edwardian Promenade, I just shot her an email asking, you know, how different was it in Britain? Because I wasn't finding any information right, about right. it. Um, just with my basic searches. So she says, Hi, Kelly. First things first, erase all U.S. laws and mores, etc. from your mind. <laughs> Contraceptives were never legal in Britain. They were simply frowned upon for moral reasons, but obtainable if you knew where to get them. Because women were supposed to bear children, especially heirs, birth control was something only the most daring of women discussed amongst themselves, but the common forms of beastie were condoms, pessaries, and douches. However, condom use was not widespread since it was linked to sex with prostitutes. They were given to soldiers during World War I to prevent VD, which actually sidelined more men than injuries. A particularly nasty side note to birth control was the eugenics movement which sought to breed out degenerates, mongrels, and other undesirables by sterilizing anyone with quote-unquote bad traits. Mm -hmm. So more than a few outspoken Edwardian supporters of contraceptives were eugenicists. Very few people disassociated the use of birth control from procreation, so those who did acquire condoms and whatnot to have sex for the sake of sex likely never spoke of it or left evidence on public record. The book to look at is Marie Stopes' Married Love, which I blogged about a few months ago, and we'll post the link for that Mm -hmm. later. As for Sybil and Tom, for all their radical politics, Sybil is still a gently reared Earl's daughter who spent most of her time in the country, and Tom is an Irish Catholic. They would never think to use birth control and might not know anything about it. Evangeline. So, this was a great letter, and it actually set me down some very, very interesting paths. Mm -hmm. The first of which was investigating this Marie Stopes woman who led a fascinating life and is really uh, kind of the the British analog to Margaret Sanger. Um, she advocated very strongly for birth control and just for women to be able to have some control over their sexual health. Mm-hmm. Um, notably different from Margaret Sanger, she never was in favor of abortion. She argued that uh, prevention by con- uh, contraception was all that right. was needed, which technically speaking is true, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, right. we're not going to get into that on this no. nonpartisan podcast. <laughs> so basically she got married to this guy and she got the marriage. She got a divorce, not an annulment, but she cited non-consummation as the reason. And mm-hmm. then after she did that, she, published this book called Married Love, Love or Love and Marriage. And um, she was a legal virgin when she published this book, which I thought was a hilarious distinction to right, make. Right, right. Um, but, you know, it was basically just about how, how she thought it should go. And uh, in, 19, in 1915, she actually met Margaret Sanger. Oh. Um, and so, you know... She got some advice from Margaret Sanger and she tried to, uh, she tried to publish it, but pretty much everybody was like, whoa, (laughs) this is filthy. (laughs) We're not going to do that. (laughs) It wasn't actually printed until, um, 
1918. Mm-hmm. So after the success of that book, she wrote another book called Wise Parenthood, a book for married people. And that was an entire manual on birth control, not just about, you know, how to have sex and take care of yourself. Right, right. And uh, basically, the funny thing about that, though, is that she didn't have any children when she wrote that book. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, she actually did get pregnant in 1919. But the baby was stillborn, mm. um, which the doctors suggested that it was like due to syphilis. But that was they did an examination and she didn't have syphilis. Mm. Uh, but she was like really, really upset. And she said like they murdered her baby or something. It was very bizarre. That's no, that's like, why would you just say that's probably because you had syphilis? Right. Like, this is, we have no idea. We're guessing syphilis. Probably. Well, that sounds right. They're just rolling the die like, ah. Uh, you're well. You're kind of a slut, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but she was 38, so more likely than not, it was mm, that she was right. really, you know, advanced in age to be having a baby. Right. Uh, she did try to convince Anglican bishops and also the Catholic Church to, you know, advocate for birth control amongst their constituents. Surprisingly, they were not a big fan. Yeah. Uh, especially the Catholic Church were yeah. very upset. Although I've always. I don't even know if this is really true. I'd I had gotten the impression that in this before Humanae Vitae, which was the big anti birth control thing in the yeah. Catholic Church, that people thought it might be close to like turning around on that. Like there was a time when people really thought the Catholic Church was close to coming out in favor of it mm-hmm. and then they wound up going the other way right. and like doubling down on it. So I think, you know, there there was a time when it was actually up for debate. Yeah. I don't think this was that time, though. Yeah, I think this right. this was like the early 1920s. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she then um, opened a birth control clinic, kind of inspired again by Margaret Sanger. Although mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger, Margaret Sanger actually had a much harder time, you know, as Evangeline's letter would point out. You right, know, right. And, you know, she was dealing with things being illegal rather than just distasteful. Right. This is more of a like that cosmetics thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Stopes opened this uh, place. It's called the Mother's Clinic in London. And it was run by midwives, which I'm assuming... Well, I guess this there's that new show on PBS called Midwife. Right, right. But I'm curious if they, there's any sort of this legacy involved there. So right, that's on right. tonight. That's on tonight. That's on tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Or it was on before for people listening to this now. <laughs> right. Um, but she actually built up an entire network of clinics all across Britain. And she got mm. funding for them. And... Um, she also was assisted by Dora Russell, uh, who is also fascinating. I can't get into it too much, but she was the second wife of Bertrand Russell. Okay, yeah, yeah. And she was basically a socialist. She believed in free love. Mm-hmm. Uh, she advocated, you know, for for family planning and uh, birth control and everything. Just a fascinating woman. She also became a countess in 1931 when Bertrand mm. Russell's older brother died. Uh, so that's kind of funny to have a socialist countess. Right. So she was she was put on trial after a Roman Catholic doctor, Halliday Gibson Sutherland, published a book called Birth Control. And so he was attacking Stopes for her advocacy of a cervical cap. The cervical cap uh, is also t- sometimes referred to as a pessary. Okay. Pessary. I thought, well, I don't know. I thought a pessary was like a suppository. 
It's very complicated. Okay. <laughs> Basically, a pessary is anything that's inserted into the vagina or the anus okay. for some therapeutic use. Okay. The pessary was sort of the proto-cervical cap and diaphragm. Okay. Um, the, the cervical cap actually was a lot more popular in Britain than it was in America. Okay. I think it was, it was just, you know, sort of the issue of being there first. Right, right. Anyway, so there was this trial that uh, Stopes in- initiated because uh, Sutherland was accused of libel. She accused him of libel. She took the case to court, and the jury found in favor of Stopes and saying, you know, yes, she was the victim of libel. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the judge ignored the jury, and uh, he found in favor of Sutherland. But then she appealed it, and then they went back. But then the Catholic community supported Sutherland for a final appeal to the House of Lords. And um, you can kind of guess how that went. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just hope nothing I do is ever appeal to the House of Lords. Yeah. Because I don't yeah. feel like it would go my way, regardless. No, it's 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 weird. It's really weird. Okay, now here's where things get weird. <laughs> like, especially weird. Okay. So... She was a very popular person, actually. She was friends with George Bernard Shaw. She was friends with Noel Coward, Lord Alfred Douglas. Mm-hmm. She actually edited his letters. Mm. Um, she was also friends with John Gilgood, Evelyn Waugh, Virginia Woolf. So she was really in there with all of the literary lights. Right, right. And she wrote some uh, poetry and some plays that were sort of influenced by her, her birth control stuff. Unfortunately... She was one of those really big fans of eugenics, uh, much like Margaret Sanger. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate that all of the pioneers that allowed women to take control of their biology were also horrible, racist, <laughs> classist, bad people. Yeah. And even as they're like saying, oh, you know, these lower class women shouldn't have to be producing babies all the time. That was really Stopes' big thing. It's like, why are we forcing these women to be pregnant and, and having children their right. entire lives? But she actually, she sent a copy of her poetry book, Love Songs for Young Lovers, to Adolf Hitler, yeah. uh, which is classy. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and it wasn't really necessarily to curry favor with him. This was in 1939, kind of before all the Final Solution stuff had gotten right. underway. This is this is before Godwin's Law. Yeah, but uh, she had hoped that he would he would like put that book in birth control clinics all over Germany. But then he, uh, he actually shut the birth control clinics <laughs> down. So, because, um, uh, you know, the fatherland needs more soldiers. Yeah. Birth uh, control is not. And it's, it's thing. weird to me that she was writing him because she was anti-Prussian, anti-Catholic and anti-Russian and apparently possibly anti-Semitic. Uh, so not a great, not a great person. Yeah. Did a lot of good work. Her well, clinics are still in Britain, like, to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I find it hard to tell who was anti-Semitic in Britain at the time, because the impression I get, I haven't looked into it that closely, but it sort of like seems everyone like... everyone was? Well, except it seems like, A, everybody was, but B, they were also less so than, like, anywhere else in Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's this sort of, like... Do you judge it like objectively or relatively or that sort right, of thing? Right, right. Because they had, you know, Disraeli and, and uh, uh, other people, you know, there were very, there were a lot of Jews with powerful positions in society, mm-hmm. but they were still very discriminated against. So, you know, it's hard to. Yeah. It's uh, it's just distasteful. Yeah. Distasteful era. Yeah. For inter, <laughs> interracial ethnic relations. Yeah. Just bad, bad scene. Yeah. 
So yeah, so that's the Cliff Notes version of Marie Stopes. I definitely want to read her crazy book. Yeah, uh, I'm books. interested. Yeah, it's just it's very very fascinating. Yeah. Um, just the kind of motley crew that got together <laughs> to try and, and help women be healthier in general. Um, so yeah, so um, you know you have the cervical cap. Women will also use a sponge. And then, you know, douching. Once Lysol was invented, women would, like, douche with Lysol as a contraceptive. Yeah. Which makes me feel a lot of pain, I, like, it, as I think about it. It makes me feel a lot of pain in parts I don't even have. Yeah. Like, e. Um Now, condoms, as Evangeline mentioned, they were associated very strongly with prostitution. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't really considered to be appropriate mm-hmm. to be used. Um but they were get they were given out like a lot during World War One because there was a lot of syphilis going around. <laughs> right, uh, syphilis not super fun. No. Uh, again, if you have read the works of uh, Henrik Ibsen, <laughs> you will know that it's not good times. Um, but actually, condoms became a lot more uh, reliable. Uh, once vulcanized rubber was invented Mm, mm -hmm. because then, you know, it was just easier to make them uniform and you didn't have to worry about weak spots and bursting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, spermicide came into uh, development around like the 1900s. So there really was this vested interest in kind of going there. And obviously with people in the Edwardian period, at least in the upper classes, being so sexually uh, free with each other, it makes a lot of sense, you know, and, and with well, um, and I inheritance to, laws being so important, too. I also wonder to what extent there's a cause and effect relationship there, sort of like how when the pill came along, kind of that contributing to the sexual revolution. That's possible. to an extent the sexual freedom was enabled by. Well, most of what I just mentioned actually happens in the... Like World War One era, oh, okay. Like most, like you know, a lot of things were developed so really, early on, yeah. But things didn't get sort of um, standardized and really advocated for until like okay. the you know nineteen twelve, nineteen fifteen. So it actually was the reason I originally thought, which was just that King Edward was real horny. Yeah, yeah. Which I uh, I have an anecdote to back that up. Actually. Okay, would you like to share it now? Yeah, I'll do it. This is I'm I'm doing a little bit of teasing from this book, Edward and the Edwardians, that I bought in New York. That's actually out of print. I just stumbled across it. Um, I haven't finished it yet, so the full book report will be coming next time. But there were two things I flagged. One of them was this anecdote. Uh, he was staying incognito in Paris with his aide de camp, Arthur Paget. On the evening of their arrival, Edward gave Paget his freedom and went off on his own, but came back early. Walking through the dining room, he saw Paget enjoying the company of an attractive woman. The king joined them at their table and was charming. Over the coffee, he said, Dear boy, I have worked you much too hard today. Go and get some rest. I'm feeling fine, sir, replied Paget. When they had drunk their cognac, Edward turned to Paget again and said, You are looking very tired. But I assure you, your majesty. A second cognac was called for. I advise you, go up to bed immediately. This time the penny dropped, and leaving the king alone with his conquest, the aide-de-camp reluctantly disappeared. <laughs> so in case any of you were wondering, Edward, terrible wingman. Yeah, really bad. I don't <laughs> think that was ever his intention, though. <laughs> no. So, assuming you weren't getting knocked up by King Edward himself, <laughs> basically, women, you know, one of the reasons that separate bedrooms were kind of the norm 
uh, or at least separate beds was because that was a barrier to women being pregnant constantly. Like, mm-hmm. and that was more for middle and upper class people. Cause you know, you could afford a second bed or right, another room, right. lower class women basically could expect to have five children out of eight or more pregnancies that would live. Mm-hmm. Um, infant deaths were mostly prevalent against the poor. I mean, this is all, it's just kind of commonsensical right, stuff right. being, you know, getting pregnant outside of marriage. If you were middle class, generally you had to marry whoever you had sex with, mm-hmm. um, as quickly as possible, or you had to be sent away and then, ado- you know, put the kid up for adoption. Right. Right. Um, a lot of times newborn babies would be found abandoned or strangled or smothered. Yeah. Um, if the mother was found, she was tried with murder. And at the time it was male judge, all male jury. There was no right mitigation for circumstances. Um, and then some women would keep the baby and apply to the local magistrate to force the father to pay toward the, the, the child's upkeep. And actually, at least this is from, um, Hastings. Generally, the woman was believed as long as she could bring witnesses that she had been consorting with the man, mm. uh, at the time of conception. So that's an interesting little factoid there. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I read some things about, and this is more specifically Victorian, but it just said that, you know, women were so protected that if it, that it was just quoting one person advising his son, never be alone in the same room as a woman mm-hmm. because you'll be legally liable for any story she claims happened there. Well, and you just weren't allowed to talk about any of the symptoms of pregnancy. Mm. So it makes, you know, when we made fun of LG for not knowing anything about sort of, you know, women's troubles. Uh, right. I mean, it's not just yeah. that he's ignorant. It's that, you know, and he would have been raised during the Victorian era yeah. particularly. So there would have been a really strong social effort to make sure that neither he or McGee knew anything right. about what was going on. And I found this weird thing that talks about representation of pregnancy in Victorian literature. And apparently George Eliot just scandalized everybody because George Eliot's book, Adam Beatty, like they would allude to missed periods and sort of, you know, gaining pregnancy weight, uh-huh. um, things like that. And just like everybody was really upset about it because nobody wanted to hear that. Okay, so according to Victorians, the old masters had perfected the art of producing a baby all at once, and certainly without any hint about the act of conception, the circumstances of pregnancy, or more importantly, the subjective state of the woman approaching and experiencing motherhood. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's from that's a quote from um, Jill Maidis' Unstable Bodies, Victorian Representations of Sexuality and Maternity. Oh. So, yeah, George Eliot, kind of a, a rebel. I mean, obviously, in right. more ways than one. Yeah. But, like, women, pregnant women were encouraged to eat moderately and avoid cravings. That was considered to be disgusting. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, any indication right. that you were any different than you had been mm-hmm. previously was really, really looked down on. Yeah. It was just so weird. And, I mean, it's not like we have a totally 100% healthy... healthy yeah relationship with pregnant women now but just back then just the sheer ignorance i know i keep hitting that but right i mean there is a reason i can't find anything right and i mean part of it is lazy (laughs) the other part of it though is that there's just not a lot of first person narrative and i mean and that's been the case you know right all the way back right uh i remember i read this book called america's women by gail collins which is excellent it's kind of like a 
Reader's Digest mm-hmm. condensed version of women's history in America. But she's just saying that we don't know how women in the early days of America or, you know, many other cultures dealt with their periods, right. dealt with contraception, dealt with any of these things because they were neither encouraged to think about it, talk about it or write it down. In yeah. many cases, you know, they were kept illiterate right. specifically right. to not be able to share their stories. Yeah. So yeah. the other interesting thing that I found that, seems to be more specifically Victorian because it's talking about corsets and the wasp waist, mm. which was, you know, the preferred shape for the Victorian era versus the Edwardian era where the line straightened out a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I read this statistic that a woman wearing a corset would put anywhere between 20 and 80 pounds of pressure per square inch on the female torso. Wow. And there is some literature that suggests that from the 1840s onward through the end of the 19th century, the fertility rate was on the decline. And this, this person, this blog is from uh, such eternal delight dot wordpress dot com. It is uh, about historical costuming primarily, mm-hmm. but you know, the idea was that the corset was responsible for decreased fertility because it was distorting the uterus and different right, organs. Right. Uh, a lot of proto-gynecologists warned women that, you know, they should know that the corset could stop them from, you know, mm-hmm, essentially mm-hmm. performing their duty, their right, one duty. Right. Uh, Dr. Kellogg, your yes. old friend, <laughs> wrote that it was shameful for women to wear corsets during pregnancy. So basically women, you know, were, were not supposed to wear corsets during pregnancy, but sometimes they would anyway, because a very small waist was a sign of, of status. Yeah. You know, the smaller the waist, the more you were, you know, frail and, and, you know, delicate all of the, the qualities that were encouraged, you know, yeah. You wanted to appear as helpless as possible. Right. And the fact that you were capable of producing a human life kind of put the lie to that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, in the Edwardian era, we have the opening of a little store called Lane Bryant. Hey. Lane Bryant actually started out as a pregnancy maternity wear store. Oh. And it was created by a Lithuanian immigrant named Lena Himmelstein. And uh, she found work in some sweatshops in New York. But she married a guy named David Bryant in 1899. And she had a son named Raphael. Unfortunately, Bryant died shortly after she had her son. And Lena had to support her family by designing and sewing tea gowns and lingerie. So then in 1904, she set set up a shop on Fifth Avenue with the assistance of her sister's husband. Because God help if you tried without one in those days. But the reason that the store is called Lane Bryant and not Lena Bryant is that the uh, bank officer who uh, was making up her account for her loan to open the store misspelled her name as Lane. Oh. Uh, so that's why it's Lane Bryant. Oh. And so she very quickly built this reputation about maternity wear. Mm. And she actually just created it by accident. She attached an accordion pleated skirt to a bodice using an elastic band. So it would grow with you throughout your pregnancy. Right. And then in 1909, she married again, a guy named Albert Malson. And um, he basically, you know, implemented a bunch of measures, you know, cutting a bunch of dresses at once and using um, sewing machines, that kind of stuff. And in 19, by 1910, her sales exceeded $50,000 a year, which wow. is huge yeah. for the time period. Yeah. 
And then at that point, she decided to start creating clothes for plus size women. So if you are a person who has or is now shopping at Lane Bryant, as I have, Mm -hmm. uh, you have this Lithuanian immigrant to thank for it and kind of inventing maternity wear besides. No word on whether she was doing uh, maternity corsets, (laughs) though I would hope not. I would hope. Lastly, on our grand tour of uh, Edwardian baby stuff, (laughs) so baby names underwent a big change during the Edwardian era. Hmm. Prior to that, in the Victorian period, so say you had a baby and you wanted to name him Charles. Okay. Much like Ethel did. Right. If that infant died, the next infant that you gave birth to would be named Charles. Hmm. And in most Victorian families, the name pool was limited to five to eight names. And only the aristocracy would uh, use kind of fanciful names. Mm-hmm. But even then, like, it was, it was, you know, it was still right. the same, like, five to eight names. Yeah. Like, they weren't naming anybody Brooklyn or I'm anything. sorry. That was prior to the Victorian era, not the actual Victorian era. Oh, okay. So the Victorians stopped reusing the names of deceased infants. They okay. were like, oh, this is unlucky, which is kind of something that I think persists today. Yeah. You don't really yeah. want to go tempting fate. That's why I didn't use our baby names that we've picked out as our example. Oh, right. Um, but the Victorians loved everything gothic, so Tennyson and the pre-Raphaelites brought back all these crazy names, you know, Lancelot, Ralph, Edgar, Alice, Elaine, Edith, and Mabel, Edith. Uh, yeah. Uh, which makes a Sybil is a very sort of, right, you right. know, medieval right. idea. Mary is pretty standard. Like, I think if, I think you have to have somebody named Mary, <laughs> you know. Um, and then also the Romantic movement uh, introduced names like Wilfred, Quentin, Cedric, Amy, and Rowena, or Rowena, depending on your pronunciation. Hmm. And there was the uh, religious Tractarian movement. And so that revived really old saints' names like Euphemia and Genevieve. Uh. So at this point, when we get into the Edwardian era, and, and remember again, um, you know, it would have been the Victorian era when right. uh, the Earl and Countess of Grantham were naming their children. Yeah, yeah. So those names wound up kind of just being popular everywhere. You know, it was like the Brittany and Heather <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of the time period. And it had trickled down even, you know, to the middle and lower classes. Mm-hmm. And also the other big trend was nature names. Hmm. Uh, flowers and stuff, you know, daisy, iris, ivy, primrose, barrel, Ugh. barrel, <laughs> pearl and ruby. Um, those became very fashionable. And then just, you know, they went nuts with the flower names. Uh, yeah. And then Celtic names were also very popular, hmm. uh, which I wonder what Tom Branson would have to say about his culture <laughs> being rated for the names yeah. of uh, British people, but also Welsh names were, uh, were oh, right. pretty popular, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's an interesting tale that I did not know. Alliteration was popular. Oh, yeah. Uh, two Edwardian names uh, as examples, Beatrice Bessie Battiscombe and Reginald Ronald McDonald. <laughs> horrible. Absolutely horrible. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they also sort of would make up some names. So that's Edwardian baby names. Interesting. All right, so that's baby stuff. 
Yeah. Uh, I was going to talk about fox hunting, but this has already gone on long, much longer than we thought it would. Yeah, we were thinking this would be like 45 minutes. Yeah, and, and there's actually a lot of information on fox hunting. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we'll hold off on that for another time. Yes, and with, with that little head start, maybe we will be a little bit less procrastinating about the next installment. I certainly hope so. But I'm not making any guarantees. Yeah, we can't promise you anything. <laughs> we saw what happened the last time we tried. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you've found something uh, interesting out of all this. Yeah. Uh, if you have any questions, as always, let us know either by email, Twitter, Facebook. And if you have any insight on any of these subjects that we didn't find ourselves, that's also something we would love to hear. Absolutely. And, and there might more. even be a cousin of the week designation in it, it for you. It's possible. All right. Well, thank you very much. Until next time. Up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs.